is another full episode of one of our favorite podcasts, Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio, hosted by David Rothkopf, produces new episodes two to three times per week and brings together top experts, policymakers, and journalists from the national security, foreign policy, and political communities. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you become a member of the DSR Network, you'll receive benefits such as ad-free listening via private feed, discounts to virtual events, and Deep State Radio swag, and access to the member-only Slack community. This is one of the most closely followed podcasts among the people influencing the most important decisions in Washington and worldwide today. You can learn more by visiting thedsrnetwork.com. Listeners to Words Matter will receive 25% off the regular membership price. Use code WORDSMATTER at checkout. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. It's Thursday, so I am joined also in New York City by co-host Ryan Goodman. How are you doing, Ryan? Pretty well, David. Thanks. Uh, Ryan, of course, from NYU Law School and Just Security. Also, I guess, I don't know if Max is in New York City or not. Yeah. Where are you, Max Boot of the Washington Post and the Council on Foreign Relations? I am in New York, New York, in on New the York, Upper West New Side, York. to be exact. And in our nation's capital, making sure everything keeps running smoothly. Thanks for that, by the way. Dr. Kavita Patel, formerly of the Obama White House uh, of the Brookings Institution and a practicing physician. How are you, Kavita? Good. Good to be with you all. Um, wow, that's very subdued response from Kavita. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, th- I thought we would start today picking up on uh, um, Max's most recent column, which is sort of how I start every day, um, <laughs> looking for Max's most recent column. And um, uh I'll frame it this way. Um, we are now sort of the middle of April. Uh, we are approaching three full months of the Biden presidency. Uh, and I think we're kind of past the point where it's too early to draw some conclusions about politics in the Biden era. I think we can we can start to see what it looks like. And, you know, if you remember where we were at this point in the uh Trump presidency, Flynn had already gone. They'd already tried the Muslim ban. We already had seen, obviously, all their shenanigans in the campaign. And it was just like the first week of May that he fired Comey. So that was all, you know, kind of right around now. We, we knew who Donald Trump was, and we knew what the politics of the era would be. Um, and um, uh, Max, you, you, you sort of framed this in an interesting way in, in your last column. The Washington Post did not title it um, the only good Republican is a dead Republican, but it was kind of like the only good Republican is a Democrat. Um, uh, and 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 it, it was talking about, you know, we're we are now seeing some vestige or some hint of the post Trump Republican Party. And it's not pretty. At least no, because it looks a lot like. Gone. So what do you what do you think? Well, because the post-Trump Republican Party looks a lot like the Trump Republican Party. It's the same party, 
uh, they haven't really adjusted since Trump left. I mean, it's it's kind of shocking to see. You would think that a president uh, who presided over one of the worst pandemics in U.S. history and the unnecessary loss of hundreds of thousands of lives and then incited a violent insurrection uh, against uh, the Congress, you would think that a president like that might be repudiated by his party, right? Especially because he's actually intensely unpopular with the country at large, but that is not the case at all. Uh, there was just a new Reuters Ipsos poll out, which shows that 80% of Republicans, that's eight zero, have a favorable impression of Trump. And most of the party remains firmly in his cult uh, with something like uh, 60% believing that the election was stolen from him and 55% saying that the attack on the Capitol was led by you know, fiendish left-wing agitators trying to frame these good, innocent Trumpkins uh, of, of these nefarious charges. I mean, this is nuts, right? I mean, this is crazy, but this is what most Republicans believe. So that's a pretty damning picture of the party as it currently exists. And you can see why uh, most Republican leaders are coming down to Mar-a-Lago uh, to, to seek... Uh, uh, the orange one's blessing, because that's what the base wants. That's what the party wants. Uh, they still are very much enthralled to Trump, which, you know, anybody who has any kind of critical thinking or isn't at all in touch with reality, I think would have to be incredulous by this. But clearly, most of the Republican Party is not in touch with reality. And so that's why, you know, I conclude this article by saying the Republican Party is pretty hopeless. And I think for those of us who still think of ourselves as being on the center right and kind of the sane center right, there really aren't a lot of options right now. There's not a viable third party option as, as far as I know. And that basically leaves the Democratic Party in becoming Biden Republicans, which I think is a much more palatable option now, certainly than if we'd had, you know, President Bernie Sanders or somebody like that, because I think Joe Biden has actually been doing an excellent job. And even though he's not winning any Republican votes in Congress, he is appealing to the country at large, including a lot of ordinary rank and file Republicans. And he has very strong approval ratings, much stronger than, than Trump had. And his plans for fighting COVID and for reviving the economy have 60 to 70 percent support, uh, which is which is very, very high. Uh, so, you know, I, I think he is governing in, in a pretty centrist, sensible, sane manner. And you're already seeing results coming in with the acceleration of COVID vaccinations, uh, with the economy picking up steam, uh, with our uh, freight alliances being being slowly repaired. So I, you know, I think he's he's off to an excellent start, and and I think you've performed a public service by reminding us of just how insane the beginning of the Trump presidency was by comparison, which makes the sanity and sobriety and and, and good sense of this president. Uh, seem all the more remarkable by contrast. So that kind of diagnosis is precisely why we always have a doctor on the, these episodes. I, I don't. Did you ever do any psychiatric training, Kavita? I did. I was in a, believe it or not, one of the largest psych wards, uh, the Twin Towers in L.A., the the, the jail system. So I've oh, I had you my. Say you were in the White House, the the psych ward. Yeah, there. No, I, I was sure you were going to say. I that. was the armchair psychiatry <laughs> rotation. But I did. I did. True, legit. Did I? I did. I. I could definitely. In fact, I've often thought I have to prescribe something for basically myself during the Trump era. So yes, absolutely. <laughs> 
Yeah, and and I thought you were going to say the largest psych ward being the Congress. But having <laughs> said that, um, uh, obviously I'm making a bit of a joke, but Max is saying that you know 80 percent of Republicans still support Trump, and you know you see uh, you know all sorts of examples of of this. Um, r- recent polls have come out um, uh, regarding the American Rescue Plan. trillion American rescue plan, hugely successful. 75% of Americans support Biden's handling of uh, COVID. 60% support his handling of the economy. Um, Something like 75%, somewhere between 70 and 80, support different iterations of an infrastructure bill. And there is unanimous Republican opposition on the Hill to all these things. Matt Gates is, I mean, he's certainly taken a page out of the Trump book. Nobody is condemning him. Um, this must be some form of mass psychological illness. Oh, yeah. Right, isn't Isn't this, I mean, this feels like not just cult of personality, but it's it's exactly what you see when, call it whatever you want, Stockholm Syndrome. I mean, when you have like a party that's truly been held captive. And I, I've said this before. I, I think, Max, you've written about it. I know we've talked about this didn't start with Trump. I, I think that's the point. And, and I, it's also identity crisis. You can't talk to, um, I won't even say a Trump supporter. I can't you can't talk to somebody who is still to this day financially supporting the Republican Party and confront them on issues such as, you know, getting our country out of debt. Who's done that? You know, we have now three Democratic presidents, Clinton, Obama and Biden, who have all had to come in and deal with kind of economic situations their predecessors, Republicans, have left them with. Number two, who's who's actually kind of tried to transfer kind of the welfare nation? Clinton got a lot of grief for it, but I would say that there's been a major like success stories in policy, but if you talk to any, I, I do think that talking to friends of mine who are still, you know, even if they say, well, Trump doesn't represent all Republicans, but they won't come out and denounce January 6th. They won't come out and actively denounce any of these issues. Matt Gates, take, take your pick. And I do think that there's something psych- psychologically troubled and I worry, honestly, David, what worries me the most is that it kind of gets passed down to other generations. That's where I'm, I'm concerned. I think Max's column, for anyone who hasn't read it, it was excellent. And I think you were asked this morning, Max, why, you know, what is the future going to be? So what happens? Doesn't this kind of ebb and flow? And my concern is that I don't know if this is something that you're passing on basically to your children. And there's some truth, David, in this narrative that in the South, especially, even in kind of urban areas in the South, they're clinging to anything that's possible to continue to have kind of this power over the rest of the country, because without it, there's no identity. And that's what I, that's what I worry about. You know, one of the things that strikes me about all this, um, Ryan, is, and obviously I'd like your views on the, on the whole discussion is that even the quote mainstream media sort of has played into this 
and they continue to sort of normalize the Republican behavior um, and and try to uh, legitimize Republican arguments, um, uh, um, you know, on a whole, you know, variety of fronts, you know, so there was a conversation about Joe Manchin, which we'll get to, and I saw that Chris Saliza writing a thing saying, the liberal Democrats are not going to get their agenda. And I was like, well, the liberal Democrats, you mean the people who want democracy in America, the ones who oppose voter suppression? And this is, you know, this is not some, you know, this is not Fox. Uh, and, and, I, and I've seen, you know, on a regular basis, Politico doing something similar where they frame these things this way. Is this just getting baked in the cake? Ryan? Yeah, I think that's also been a phenomenon that was for me very distressing through parts of the Trump uh, presidency, the way the media would frame uh, Democrats as being concerned about the Mueller investigation rather than rule of law, people concerned about the Mueller investigation. Um, and it, I, I also think, it, you know, it feeds into this idea that it's divided by party when in fact, like you're saying, David, that, you know, based on the percentages that you said in support of various Biden plans, there's a large part of the country, uh, regardless of party, that is um, supportive of these plans and, and his agenda, including uh, Republicans. It's the elected Republicans in Congress that aren't. Um, and it's just remarkable, the mismatch. I guess the one issue I wanted to try to connect a certain dot and then ask Max um, to talk about the kinds of conversations that you must have, Max, with Republican friends and colleagues, because that's in some sense the audience, you know, this first specific audience for your column, because at the end you say we should become, you know, Biden Republicans. Um, and that's the idea that's also kind of been circulating this week that because the Republicans in Congress are having nothing of the Biden agenda, it's maybe pushing Biden further to the left because there's just no negotiating partner on the other side. And so I could imagine somebody reading your column as a Republican saying, I, I agree with a lot of it, like about the rule of laws concerns, the democracy concerns, the crazy conspiracy issues, like the 55% of uh, Republicans saying that they think a violent left-wing mob <laughs> took over the Capitol. Uh, but on the, uh, on, the, on the economy, on the plans, if they think that what's actually happening is a shift further to the left, if that's their idea in their head, right or wrong, how you respond, what's your response to that? I would imagine that's kind of the, how the conversation goes with somebody who's not fully convinced yet. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, and there's not, um, you know, there's not any agreement, I would say even among never Trumpers about what the next step is. In fact, there's a pretty active debate about should they form a third party? Should they stay in the Republican party and fight for it? Uh, you know, should they join the Democrats? And I, I'm, you know, I kind of uh, laid out my own view, which is I think that the Democratic Party right now under Biden is probably the only game in town, but that's by no means a consensus view. I think it is one that, uh, you know, I've seen uh, Bill Kristol and others be, be sympathetic to, but it's not, it's not, again, it's not the, it's not the only view. And certainly there are a lot of Republicans, including folks I respect, like Adam Kinzinger, the uh, uh, the congressman from Illinois who voted one of 10 House Republicans to vote to impeach Trump, uh, who are very firmly of the view, you know, hey, we have to stay in the Republican Party. And, uh, you know, Trump is a usurper. He's the real rhino. He's not the real Republican, you know, 
we represent, you know, the the pre-Trump wing of the Republican Party. And, you know, I, I don't, I can't definitively say what the right course of action is. I mean, it would be nice if the Republican Party would return to its census. Uh, and I think it's dangerous to the country if it continues go going off in this authoritarian Trumpian direction. I mean, that's a direct threat to our democracy. But I'm just, you know, at, at this point, I am pretty uh, feeling pretty defeated about trying to fight for the soul of the Republican Party because I'm not sure it has a soul left. I mean, it seems to be pretty much bifurcated between catering to uh, big dollar donors who want tax cuts and then playing all this uh, culture war nonsense to rouse up the, the, the rabble at the, at the grassroots and to get them to, to send in their money under often fraudulent pretenses. So I'm, you know, I'm pretty dispirited by that and, and, and looking and the, the, you know, the Republic, the democratic party seems pretty sane by comparison. Um, I mean, there are certainly, you know, farther out left-wing elements in the Democratic Party whom I disagree with, like AOC and Bernie Sanders and others, but even they're not saying just completely batshit insane stuff. I mean, <laughs> you can have an argument with them about, like, what do you do about healthcare? And I will disagree with Bernie Sanders on his prescription for healthcare, but he's not denying that global warming exists. He's not claiming that an Antifa mob stormed, uh, you know, stormed the Capitol. He's not saying that you know, masks are harmful for you. Uh, I mean, this is just a level of insanity that I don't think we've seen in the mainstream of American politics before. And, you know, I'm so I'm pretty comfortable in, I mean, me personally, I'm not, I mean, I'm going to stay an independent because I'm a writer. I don't want to be a political activist, but I'm pretty comfortable, you know, cheering on uh, the more moderate wing of the, of the Democratic Party. And I think it's actually be very good for the Democrats to have more centrists and conservatives in the Democratic ranks, because I think then they will balance out the AOCs and the Bernie Sanders and the Elizabeth Warrens and will strengthen kind of the center within the Democratic Party and help the Democratic Party to become what it has been in the past, which is the majority party in this country. And I think you can have reasonable policy discussions within the Democratic Party. That's where the discussions, I think, are occurring and will occur. You just can't have a rational discussion with people who think that an Antifa mob stormed the Capitol. That's just a level of, of insanity that you can't reason with. Well, slow, slow down there, fella. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the, the, you know, let's get back. I'm, I'm glad we've come back uh, uh, in our rotation to somebody who's actually done a psychiatric rotation because this is therapy for me now, Kavita. <laughs> Max is talking about having reasonable discussions within the Democratic Party. Let me talk to you about the smallest wing of the Democratic Party, which also seems to be a wing of the Republican Party. Uh, and here you can draw on your Senate experience as well. Help me with Joe Manchin. Okay, help me with right. Joe Manchin, who says, I will not touch the filibuster. Okay, I will not, um, uh, you know, I oppose um, uh, uh, even a modest increase in the corporate tax rate. I oppose a $15. Okay, let's, we could have a debate about the $15 minimum wage, but democracy you would think was kind of like, we're all in this. Like we got to use every tool available to stop voter suppression, but nope, not, not President Manchin. So how do, how are we supposed to deal with that, Kavita? I, I'm used to dealing with that, having worked in the Senate. Back then it was, you know, Susan Collins. And I mean, we've all kind of 
dealt with, whether they were Republicans or Democrats, kind of that 51st vote, the 50th vote in this case. I, I think that the problem is I everything Max said kind of rings true to any logical, and here's the problem, anybody who's logical and just takes a thought process, dealing with COVID, vaccinating people, wearing masks until we have a little more proof, all of that rings true. And then you get to Congress, or then you get to even more absurd, the back room conversations that are happening. Not what what Senator Manchin is not putting in a Washington Post op-ed, because he's also, I would just tell you that he has been, and so have some other members of Congress, kind of single-handedly preventing regulatory kind of executive. There are things that have happened behind the scenes that the American public's not even aware of. Like, so, can you be more specific? Well, I'll be, I'll be very specific. I mean, he's been very clear about kind of directions for even potential nominees of very important agencies, uh, some in the Department of Defense, some in HHS, like the FDA. And he's been very clear about his preferences. And if you think about kind of the scope creep of that, yes, these are people who have to be confirmed by a Senate but they're not even getting kind of their day because they're already getting kind of the negative wave, you know, from like, literally, as you said, at President Manchin. So Max, I reflect and think, boy, I really want to join that Democratic Party that Max is talking about because I don't know if we have it. And you're right. We don't have as much of the crazy but I often wonder, like, do we have, are we held hostage ourselves? Do we have our own version? Not as scary, not as, you know, propagating death like Trump and Bolsonaro and those types. But do we have our own kind of boogeyman in the form of being held hostage to mansion? And I'll say the one thing that'll make you feel better, David, we, the four of us would agree, it is hard. We can criticize Joe Biden for a lot of things on his big actions, even today on gun violence, it is hard to kind of fi- find flaws in what he's doing. And so he is using that 30 years of knowing how the Beltway works better than anybody, building on what didn't happen before, adding on to it. I mean, this man is going to become what I think had been a laughing stock in politics at a certain time, a masterclass in like how to, you know, how to look at timing and when to insert an issue. And that gives me a lot of hope, but I feel like the Democrats need to get their act together as well. Well, I, you know, I agree that that Joe Biden so far is giving a masterclass uh, and what he's doing is 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 what no one thought he would do, which is he's sort of <laughs> bypassing the beltway. Yeah. Going to the American people. Yeah. And he's you know, he's doing a fairly simple, simple thing, which is he's saying, well, show me all the polls and let's look at the areas where 70 plus percent of the American people are two thirds. of The American people support something that's bipartisan support. I'm going to f- that's my sweet spot. I'm going to focus on that. But 90 percent of American people support in enhancing background checks and, and, and more sensible gun control. Um, I don't know if Joe Manchin is in that group. Joe Manchin ran a TV commercial um, where, you know, he was firing a rifle at a target and so on and so forth. Um, and, um, you know, Biden's steps today on gun control were great. And it was great that he had a gun control guy that he's putting in charge of, 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 of you know, he's nominating to be in charge of some of these regulatory things. Um, but Ryan, they were also pretty small steps. I mean, let's be honest. It's Biden trying to thread the needle 
in the way that Kavita is talking about here. And I really worry, and, and, and I, you know, I think this is the crux of this discussion, which is, have we hit the high watermark for the Biden administration? I mean, Joe Manchin has said he doesn't want to use reconciliation on infrastructure. Well, if we don't use reconciliation on infrastructure, it's going to be as third as big. It's not going to include these tax increases for corporations. It's not going to be the bill that Biden has talked about. And if we're done using reconciliation, um, you know, what, what else are we going to get done? Because Mitch McConnell is Mitch McConnell. And, you know, he's just as evil and obstructionist and obtuse as he has ever been. So is this the high watermark, Ryan, of, of this administration? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if um, it's definitely the end of it um, with respect to reconciliation on uh, infrastructure and given how popular the plan is, it seems like, at least um, for a lot of the polling. Uh, so to be the obstructionist, the single obstructionist and something like that, that could help out so many Americans um, in the economy. I don't know if that's a lot of pressure on Joe Manchin um, and where it's, you know, real issues for um, tabletop issues for a lot of American families. So I, I don't know. And also, I, you know, it depends on, I think, what that other package looks like without reconciliation, because there's already some statements from some of the Senate Republicans in favor of yeah, admittedly a much smaller package on infrastructure, but at least it's infrastructure, which mm-hmm. you know Trump promised because of the big upsides of being able to pass some kind of legislation like that. So I think that that would also be important going into the midterms, and then the midterms might change everything. Um, so even talking about a high point of the administration, you know, the two years after the midterms is going to be um, anyone's guess, uh, especially with you know what Max is talking about as well, and the dis- the defection from the Republican Party. That seems to be also underway. You know, one statistic that we hadn't talked about so far that came out this week is the Gallup poll that said uh, the split between those who affiliate with the Democratic Party is now 49 to 41, sorry, 49 to 40 uh, for the Republican Party. And it's the biggest split since Barack Obama was reelected in 2012. Uh, so that's also going into the, that's, that's a lot of headwind going into the midterms that we, I don't think we're necessarily expecting. So I think that's to me the wild card. Um, is how the midterms turn out if some of this other stuff doesn't get done in the first two years. So Max, you know, sort of similar question about where, you know, is this the high watermark? Uh, do, do we think Biden's going to continue to be able to do his magic uh, by, you know, relying on these kind of virtues that Republicans have forgotten about like common sense, decency, honesty, public service um uh and 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 my you know do, do you do you worry that he's going to get sideswiped by something else we've got a potential covid resurgence we've got um russia rattling its saber on the border of ukraine we have china rattling its sabers in the south china sea and around taiwan um there's a lot of stuff going on that could knock us off track here well, there's no question. I mean, I think, you know, Biden is off to a pretty strong start, but that's largely based on the fact that he managed to keep the Democrats unanimously behind uh, the uh, economic stimulus bill. And he has managed to do a lot of things through executive action, including, uh, you know, tremendous improvements in the distribution and management of the vaccine program. 
but obviously he is hostage to a lot of uh, different factors going forward, including, as you say, whether the Democrats will stay united, whether it'll be possible to break off any Republicans, which so far it has not been, in order to get the uh, the infrastructure bill passed. And of course, uh, there are, you know, numerous wild cards. And, you know, one of the amazing things that did not happen on Trump's watch was that we did not have a major foreign policy crisis. I mean, we certainly had foreign policy problems and, and some of which were, a lot of which in fact were created by Trump, for example, you know, breaking away from the uh, Iran nuclear deal and allowing Iran to increase the, the enrichment of, of fissile material. Uh, but we didn't have a true, you know, massive, you know, 9-11 style crisis. And, you know, knock on wood, we won't have one under Biden either, but it's not something you can count on. And as, as you mentioned, there's a lot of different areas uh, with uh, uh, China, with Russia, with Iran, where you could potentially see crises escalate in ways that nobody can anticipate. And you know, most presidents come into office, as you know, David, uh, firmly focused on domestic policy. And then usually by midway through their first term, they, they often get pulled away uh, by foreign policy concerns because that's just, you know, part of the way of the world. And, you know, if, and also of course, if a president winds up being stymied domestically in Congress, he still has a lot more freedom of action uh, internationally. And so, you know, Biden still has a lot of room to, for example, on global warming, to try to knit together more of a consensus to deal with global warming or to, he also has a lot of room, I think, to uh, do a lot more on international vaccinations, to take some of our vaccine surplus, send it to other countries, try to curb, be a leader in curbing uh, the vaccine internationally now that we're inside of curbing it at home. So I think there's a lot of potential crises as well as opportunities internationally that we're not focused on right now because for understandable reasons, he is so you know, laser focused on, on domestic priorities as he should be right now. Um, by the way, that's a brilliant idea for a column and is my column in the Daily Beast tomorrow morning. So it's almost verbatim what you said. And I just wanna say right here that I wrote it already <laughs> and I am not actually quoting what Max just said. Well, I must be on the right track if I'm channeling David. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah vice, vice versa. Kavita, I know you've got to run, but uh, and and you talked about this a little bit on the special uh, episode we did with you and Eric Feigelding about where we are in the in the course of COVID. But uh, uh, just a, a you know, what is your prognostication as we see this fourth wave um, continuing? I mean, to, 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 to grow day to day now about the political consequences of this thing that even if they do everything right, they may not be able to control. Yeah. Oh, and, and not to mention, David, just what we don't know. I mean, we're all trying to figure out what can six to nine to 12 months from now look like. It's entirely possible to Max's point and to your inevitable column that we'll all read that there is if, if we don't get a handle Wait, let on me global, write this down let exactly, me write this down inevitable column that yeah, we will all things. read yeah we i would i would just say if we don't get global vaccination if you look at what's happening not just in brazil british columbia take any spot where vaccination access vaccine access and vaccination rates are low for a variety of reasons 
add to that mistrust in one of the largest manufacturers for said vaccines, AstraZeneca, add on top of that an insane person like Bolsonaro, that is exactly the ripest kind of environment for immune escape for a virus. And so we will be immunized, have our kind of notion of herd immunity within our country, likely. People will be developing boosters. And then I've been asking the question of some Biden folks. I said, so let's just play this out. Pfizer starts with their boosters. Uh, how are we stopping like hundreds of millions of people who really want that booster and they need to get it now? And so we are going to be, it is incredibly kind of important to be humble, to not showboat about this. It's great that we're doing something at such a great pace. The variants do concern me. I don't think we're gonna see this fourth wave with the types of deaths and hospitalizations we saw, but we're absolutely going to go through unnecessary cases because of this patchwork that we've decided in the United States in terms of governance. So something that could come back and haunt the administration has been to kind of continue like the Trump, you know, let the states do what they want. We can't do a mandate. We will not exert a heavy hand in even the vaccine rollout. That could all play into a set of characteristics that harm us in the long run. Uh, no doubt. And I think that humility is something important to keep in mind here. I know you've got to step off to do something for MSNBC. Uh, thanks for speaking to thanks. us real folks. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Um, and uh, 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 Ryan, as I pick up on this, and we talk about the how the political mood might evolve. There, there's one thing we don't talk about a lot. You know, I mean, you know, we kind of say, well, this could go wrong and that, that could go wrong. That could affect us in 2022. Some of the trends inside, particularly house races, are a little concerning. Um, but we haven't seen the Trump shit hit the fan. You know, we, we haven't seen, I mean, you know, we may see the Matt Gates shit hit the fan before the Trump stuff does. I saw today that uh, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has brought on another person who's associated with the Mueller campaign. Trump has brought on a criminal defense attorney. There has been no accountability for Trump and a bunch of other people. We actually saw somebody get penalized for a Hatch Act violation during Trump the other day, which, you know, I mean, if that's if they start doing that, there's a lot of places to work on that. <laughs> Kelly, Kelly and Conway is going to be the first life imprisonment for violating the Hatch Act that there has ever been. Um, that that could also color the political mood in the US, couldn't it? Or are we are we also immune to that? <laughs> um, are we immune to that? I don't know. Um, it does seem like there's a large part of the Republican Party that is immune to that, that if anything, um, if there are indictments and prosecutions of Trump in let's say Manhattan, that uh, there'll be a rallying around Trump, you know, that he would use that as that they're coming after him because they know how much of a threat he is. So I think there's that, you know, very unpredictable part of the equation as far as I'm concerned. Uh, on the other hand, um, they might come down on him with a ton of bricks and to many Americans, they'll see it for what it is. You know, there's this, the, the scenario that's a very likely one is just a huge amount of tax fraud, tax evasion, insurance fraud, um, and, you know, the rich guy getting away with it or trying to get away with it. And, you know, the proof being highly documented and in emails and uh, maybe the chief financial officer of Trump, um, the Trump organization being on the prosecution's witness uh, list. So 
I think that could be uh, pretty compelling. Um, and I don't think that's an unlikely scenario. I would say there's a pretty high likelihood given what we have read about the tea leaves coming out of the Manhattan um, prosecutor's office in terms of the direction that this case seems to be going. Uh, you know, uh, this brings me to the last question here, and this must be something that, um, you, you know, you you pace around your highly room rated rated apartment, uh, Max, uh, <laughs> here in New York, um, uh, thinking about, and uh, that is, what could happen that could change the Republican Party? What development? could get that 80% to not think the way they do about Donald Trump, if anything. You know, there was an old, you know, saying in Washington that the thing that would end your career is being caught in bed with a live boy or, or, or a dead girl. And, you know, that was a long time ago and different value systems then, uh, because we've seen that Trump's been involved with Jeffrey Epstein uh, he's been accused of rape credibly by multiple people, sex abuse, tax fraud, treason. And still the Republican Party is like, yeah, well, you know, he's quirky. Um, it, is anything that you think might be on the horizon legally the kind of thing that could get the GOP to kick the kick the Trump habit? Or is the fact that He's going, you know, he's likely to be prosecuted in Manhattan. If the New York district attorney goes after it, that's an African, uh, New York state, that's an African-American woman. If the Fulton County district attorney goes after him, it's an African-American woman, which alienates part of the big racist Republican Party base. I mean, what is, is there anything that could shake them free of this lunacy? I mean, I don't think there's much that Trump could do to possibly shake his base. I mean, I think he's got a pretty good handle on his followers when he said he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and it wouldn't cost them any support. I think that's basically been true. I mean, he, the New York Times even just caught him defrauding a lot of his donors uh, with his you know, fraudulent uh, attempts to, to get continuing donations. And they're not going to care. Um, that's not going to do anything. And certainly, you know, being indicted by you know, a Democratic district attorney uh, in Manhattan is just going to, you know, entrench their sense of victimization and alienation. And, you know, the deep state is after us. It's a conspiracy by the libs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's certainly not going to shake their faith. I think the only thing that really could shake Trump's hold on the party is something that has not happened yet, which is massive repudiation at the polls. I mean, if the Republicans continue going down this road, and lose a landslide election. Yeah, that could change things, but that has not happened. And remember, you know, what happened in 2020, although it was a good outcome from our perspective, it was a very close run thing. I mean, a shift of something like 90,000 votes could have delivered both the House and Senate and the White House to the Republicans. They were not decisively repudiated. I mean, it's 50-50 in the Senate. It's a very narrow Democratic majority in the House, and Republicans are fully expecting that uh, in the midterm elections, they're going to take back the House and, and perhaps the Senate as well. So at the moment, they just have no incentive to change course uh, because they think the course they're on is going to be successful and they're going to be back in power within a couple of years. And they don't want to alienate Trump and his Trumpy followers uh, because they think that that's what's going to cost them elections more than embracing Trump. Um, and that may well be true in the, in the short run because, you know, they're looking to win in uh, a lot of red districts, a lot of red states. Um, 
and you know having those those trumpy legions at, at their back could could be a plus although they could also screw it up as they have in the past if they nominate complete wing nuts you know like eric greitens for example the disgraced former governor of missouri who is running for the senate there if they nominate people like that it's possible that uh that they could still sabotage themselves and cost themselves a likely victory in 2022. But I think in the long term, the only thing that's really going to shake the mania that pervades the Republican Party is to have it be decisively repudiated at the polls. And, you know, I'm happy that Trump lost, but it just was not the kind of landslide repudiation that we need. I've, I've said in the past that we needed the, the Republican Party to be raised to the ground and, and rebuilt out of the ashes. And right now, you maybe had like a little fire in the second floor bathroom or something, but <laughs> the mansion certainly has not been raised. It's still very much standing. It's intact. As long as that's the case, I don't think you're going to see a lot of rethinking on the part of Republicans. So I take it that that means you're not going to vote for Andrew Giuliani to be the next governor of New York. <laughs> oh. That that'll be the that'll be this will be like the Iran Iraq of, of gubernatorial races if it's Andrew Cuomo versus Andrew Giuliani, right? Yeah, no, that would be just ga- ghastly um, uh, for both for both parties. But you know, I you know I, we've run out of time, and I and I think that's a really good point to end on. Uh, there, I don't know what the number is, 150 different voter suppression measures out there floating around in something like 47 states. That sounds bad because it is bad. But Max's point is. The, the goal is not to suppress the vote of every Democrat. Those 150 measures are targeted at those 90,000 votes that made the difference. It's just to put your thumb on the scale a little bit. It makes a difference if you, you know, put your thumb on the scale in a few cities, a few counties in the United States, uh, and they're doing everything they can. And if that's what happens, if those laws get passed, if bo- uh, the, 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 the courts hold it up, I mean, uphold it, if, if the uh, uh, Congress does not pass um, uh, uh, voter reform, election reform laws, um, it's not going to be the Republican mansion that's raised to the ground. It's going to be American democracy, um, because if this crowd stays in power, that's, that's their goal. Uh, so while things are going well, uh, uh, certainly in the White House and for many Americans better than they have been in the past four years, uh, I think the conclusion we draw here is uh, to be cautious about what could happen over the course of the next several years. We will follow it closely. Hopefully Max will join us again um, uh, and give us some tips on how he gets those high room rater ratings. Um, and, uh, of course, Ryan will be here every week as will be Kavita as will, we hope all of you, uh, go to the dsrnetwork.com for information on all the special episodes we've got coming up and all the uh, regular episodes we have coming up, which are also pretty special and sign up to be a member there. And, uh, we'll uh, talk to you all soon. Thank you, Kavita. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Max. Thanks to everybody for listening and stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Deep State Radio. 
Deep State Radio, hosted by David Rothkopf, produces new episodes two to three times per week and brings together top experts, policymakers, and journalists from the national security, foreign policy, and political communities. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you become a member of the DSR Network, you'll receive benefits such as ad-free listening via private feed, discounts to virtual events, and Deep State Radio swag, and access to the member-only Slack community. This is one of the most closely followed podcasts among the people influencing the most important decisions in Washington and worldwide today. You can learn more by visiting thedsrnetwork.com. Listeners to Words Matter will receive 25% off the regular membership price. Use code WORDSMATTER at checkout.